Today on Way Too Interested, we're talking about highways, the things we drive on. Yes? <laughs> Just come listen to the show. So your hobby went from borderline to totally obsessive. Gavin's gonna find out how you got way too interested. Way too interested. Welcome, everybody, to Way Too Interested. My name is Gavin Purcell. Thank you for joining me. Uh, this is the podcast, in case you've never heard it, where I talk to interesting people and we get into a subject that they can't stop thinking about it. It uh, can't stop thinking about it. It's kind of a deep dive into curiosity, discovery, and kind of unpacking all those little things in your brain that you can't stop thinking about. Uh, I really love doing this. It's been a fun experience. And today I'm really excited uh, to have Anil Dash on the show. Um, Anil and I know each other, have known each other for quite a while. And he's a really uh, smart person. He's been in the internet space for a very, very long time. Uh, it was an OG blogger back in the day. Uh, and he picked a really fascinating topic, uh, highways, which I find really interesting. I didn't think it would be that interesting, but um, it really, really was fascinating. So uh, I don't want to take too much longer. I, I think this would be a fun one to get into. I want to uh, get right into it. So ladies and gentlemen, uh, please welcome uh, Anil Dash. Uh, welcome to uh, Way Too Interested, Neil Dash. I'm so happy to have you here. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for joining me. Um, you were one of the people when I thought about this podcast, I thought, I want to have Neil on because, well, there are a couple of things I should set up first here. Um, so I think I've known you on Twitter. And one of the things that you may have heard on this podcast is like, it seems like a lot of these people I'm having on guests are people I know from Twitter. <laughs> but I went back and looked at like my very first follows on Twitter, right? And I think you were like number 12. And I, I, what I wanted to ask you about was, I don't remember... I don't think we knew each other then, but clearly, how did I find you on Twitter? Was I feel like we had crossed paths in the like the G four days, and, yes, and, that and makes because sense. like the internet was small then, and and I was in the orbit of you know like a Leo Laporte or somebody like that okay. because I was a uh, uh, an arms dealer for people building blogs and, and social media sites <laughs> in the early days. That's and, right, and, and and you know the internet was small, and so everybody was sort of talking to everybody, and I, I would get to know people. So I feel like that was where I first, I, and we were probably like in the in the same room at the same time, but didn't really talk or yeah. catch up. I feel like that, yeah. that was kind of the context, and. Uh, you know, and so I, I sort of stayed in the loop. And so by the time we had somewhat more properly connected on social media, I was like, oh, I, you know, we have a, I feel like, oh, we're one degree apart. Like I, this is something I, I, you know, I have, the, you have that parasocial connection to online that you feel like you got, you know, you know them kind of. Yeah. It's interesting, especially about Twitter back then. It's funny you mentioned that because I remember going to my first South by Southwest, which was probably much later than yours in about 2005 or six, mm -hmm. maybe. And it That's was still OG. like, that yeah, 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 sure. Enough. Right. Yeah, <laughs> Enough. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, I remember meeting like Andy, Andy bio and yeah. my friend, my friend Rex was there. Rex Organs, sure. who was yeah, on this yeah. podcast. Yeah. Rex and it was a this, long time too. yeah, it was this really interesting, like kind of very small group of people that were there in that weird early time. Yeah, and yeah. there is a weird connection from those people still, I feel like. No, that's right. I mean, I think there's just, you're, if you were in a scene at a moment, that, that sort of bonds you forever. And I think about this, we're like, oh, I was thinking in terms of music. And it's like, if you were part of like the punk scene at CBGBs in the early 80s, late 70s, that's part of who you are. Even if like, whether you were one of the name bands or you were just like somebody who was hanging on the fringes, taking pictures, like it, it, it sort of stays with you and, and, and shapes your view of the world in a lot of ways. I think that that kind of was that scene. And then actually funny story was the, um, right after you guys started the, uh, late night show 
I think this, I might've been the second show or something. You had Kevin Rose on as a guest. And, yeah. you know, this is the sort of height of indignation as like, you know, proto podcast kind of thing. And uh, he, he, he had emailed me and been like, I don't know anybody in New York and I have no idea how to do this. You know, I have no idea what this is. And, That's awesome. And so I went with him and, and, you know, I, I, we went along and I'm like in the, you know, his little dressing room or whatever with it. And I was like, this is incredible, you know? Oh, you were there. You were, I didn't I even remember literally this. Physical, literally physically <laughs> That's there. That's amazing. I and, remember. And, and um, you know, and he was just like, what do you do here? And I had been around enough in media and whatever to be like, you know, just yeah. like do what they tell you. Like you, you just like, you know, stay with it. And it right about like maybe two minutes before they kicked me out, Questlove popped his head in to say, Hey, you know, like, you know, good luck out there kind of thing. And I was just like, yo. And, you know, and it was one of those things where like, he's heading out. And I was like, that was exactly that thing of like, we know each other, but it's all in this sort of virtual world. And I mean, I had yeah. been, you know, next to him at a print show at three in the morning a, a bunch of times, but that's not actually a way in which you meet people. Right. And, and so, um, and so it was such a like, Oh, and I literally remember thinking like, man, and, and I knew you were there and I knew he was there. And I was like, man, I'm never going to get to talk to these people. Like it was one of those, like, are you ever going to connect the dots between the virtual life? Cause like, you know, once you have the blue check online, people yeah. respond to you and you reply and then yeah, but in don't. real life you chop liver right and so it's such yeah. a great it was such a great uh, like reminder it's such a weird time too and that's you know, i don't really want to get deep on this but one of the things yeah. i always remember about you which i'm sure you i mean i have a thousand thoughts on this is that you were one of those early people that twitter gave like a lot of extra love to yeah. right? and and Pre-installed. that's such a yeah it's such an interesting kind of like experience for you probably because like you go from being a well-known person in the space, but to suddenly like yeah. a really well-known person, right? And also like, I think just the, that sense of having foisted upon you an identity that you didn't choose or visibility that you didn't choose is a very weird thing, especially because I'm like, I'm some guy, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, I, like it wasn't a thing that I was like, I would love to be known in social media or I don't think we have the term influencer yet. So I don't I, think, I think we knew what it was back then really. Yeah, right, exactly. right, exactly. It's sort of formed. Yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah. but yeah, I, 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 one of the things I'm grateful for is you make these connections and you get to meet yep. people and you get to find out about worlds that you otherwise never would have seen. Totally. Um, okay, well, let's step, let's step back a bit because as I've said many times in this podcast, really what I'm kind of get at here is like kind of how people discover stuff and curiosity. And yeah. one of the things I want to talk about is when I was a kid, Technology was something, and it's not surprising kind of where I ended up in some ways. It was something I was very curious about, right? So I, as a kid, went to like programming classes and had like computers and kind of pulled them apart as much as I could. I think my first computer was an Apple II, so it wasn't very pull apartable necessarily. But what was your like background as a kid in this world and this kind of world you've come into? You know, in some ways it feels like it was always there. So, you know, I was four or five years old and um, first we got... Uh, an Atari 2600, like a lot of folks, we had a game system, but it was, um, and, you know, this is one of those great things you remember as a kid. It was a present for my sister's birthday. My parents got oh. my sister, you have an older sister, and she was a tyrant at, you know, she was probably 10 years old and I was five years old, you know what I mean? So she's like, you have to ask me if you want to play. So, you know, and that sense of like the forbidden, right? Sure. It really yeah. stuck. You with always me. want that. Exactly. It made yeah. it so compelling. It was like such a great thing. And so I think it was like actually the perfect introduction to sort of technology. Mm-hmm. And then just after that, we got um, this computer that was called a VIC-20. And this was a Commodore computer. And they were, you know, the wild thing about it now, I mean, I think about this as a geek, but like the total amount of storage or, you know, like RAM or whatever, the memory of the thing would be about 120th as much as you would use to set up your avatar on Instagram. 
Like oh you couldn't, it, it could store, it could store like the upper left corner of your Instagram avatar as it, and it would take up its entire memory. And so like, That's it's so limited. And so, you know, and, and the resolution of it wouldn't even be able to, you know, display half of your, your Instagram pictures. And so I think that's the thing where I was like, the constraints were so absurd. And yet in this box was whatever you wanted to build. And I, I mean, I remember being five years old and started coding because I just read the book and just type this in and do it. And I feel like that. And then my fingers have been on that keyboard ever since. Yeah. Did you, uh, I remember having that experience of, of, I was very into text games, like mm -hmm, Infocom games. Mm -hmm, yeah. And I remember that my first experience ever writing code to just like a, a very basic text game, right? Like a very mm -hmm. basic, and, and it felt like, it really felt like magic. And what I'm always surprised myself that like, I fell out of it along the way because I, I think for my own personal pathway, like I ended up finding my way back to it in some ways, but like, yeah. I didn't really pursue it. What made you kind of like stick with it? And, and what, how, what does your path look like going through this? That's a, that's a good question. I mean, I think it ties into a lot of themes we'll probably end up talking to today, which was like, folks don't, you know, first used to an app store now, right? Mm -hmm. And then the process was, in my case, I mean, I was in a small town uh, in rural Pennsylvania. And uh, oh, how many people? Uh, the town was 2,000 people. Oh, that's pretty yeah, rough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, the next county over had no uh, stoplights. So, wow. yeah, we were we so were in a rural there. town and a ways away from a, a rural Exactly, town. right. Yeah. yeah. So we were out there. So the the thing, if I want, you know, like nowadays, like you tap on your phone and you wait for the app to download and it takes about 30 seconds. And the process mm -hmm. of, you know, quote unquote, installing an app back then was get on my bike, ride to the mall. That was probably 30, 40 minutes go to the bookstore, which was still a thing that existed then, buy sure. the computer magazine for the computer that I happen to have, ride all the way back, type in for the next three days, the code in the back of the magazine. To By the way, that's the thing people need to know. They used wild. to be code in magazines it's that you would really actually program it. Exactly. Yeah. Like you wouldn't believe it, right? And, and that there was just pages and pages of just numbers. And you yeah. would type them in slavishly, like faithfully. And then, you know, you do that for three days and then you, you know, you, you hit your run command or whatever it is, and then you get an error. And then you're like, yeah. oh, I guess I had a typo in those three yeah. days worth of typing that I did. And then you, you gotta go spend back another week fixing it, it right? Yeah. So anyway, yeah. you, you do that. And at the end of it, you get like a stick figure that moves left and right on your screen. Like, that, like they, it was so absurd. And yet somehow that feedback cycle, I think, primed me for if you just keep plugging away at it and you go mm -hmm. and also... God, wouldn't it be everything if I had access, if I didn't have to like beg my dad to drive me to the mall to go there, if my bike, I didn't feel terrified, like, because we had like, you know, semi trucks driving by sure. the highway while you're, you know, you're riding your bike. And so that sense of like accessibility and, and, you know, I think you could fast forward a decade and the narrative of, you know, Al Gore or whomever was the internet super highway. Mm -hmm. And so those things were really, really profoundly linked in my mind mm -hmm. um, that, there was this world out there that you could get to. And huh. the two paths to it were the the phone cord, which then was your way of getting on the internet. And we had a modem back then. I mean, in you know, 1982, we had a modem. It was very early. Yeah, so yeah, and too. so like plug it, plugging a, a phone cable into your computer or in my case, getting my driver's permit. Mm -hmm. These were the only two ways out of that town. And no surprise, you know, my dad had brought that computer home and he was a great mentor to me then. Like he, he actually kind of lost interest after a while, but he got me started. And, you know, he's a civil engineer uh, who built highways for 30 years. 
And so, you know, those things are very, I think, very seminal to, to sort of my view of like, how do you go out in the world and meet people and connect with things and, and make things. And, and yeah, and so that, that stayed with me. But then that, that idea of like staying with the technology, I saw an interview, um, it must have been from the late 90s with Ben Affleck. And he talks about having had a Commodore 64 computer as a kid and getting really? on his modem and, and getting on BBSs, which were bulletin board systems, which were the proto chat systems, uh, you know, predecessors to today's. They, they really were very much like a, a Discord channel. You know, Honestly, it's, right. it's funny. I was going to ask you one thing about BBSs is I got in so much trouble one time. I wonder if you ever had this problem because my dad got the phone bill. Mm-hmm. And, and I you made a long distance call. Multiple. I had been yeah. calling BBSs across the country and never mm-hmm. thinking about the cost of what it would be. Because I was like, hey, I'm calling a BBS well, in Boston. Well, because Seattle. as kids, we lived in the future and it was yeah. rational to us that it actually does not cost the phone company anything different for me to call this number versus that number because exactly. it's all just wires. So how could they possibly charge more? Now, their rationale, and part of this is because AT&T hadn't been broken up as a monopoly yet, right. is they said – well, postage costs more if you send something heavier or further. Is that right? There, there was no real reason for that ever? It, it was doesn't always, cost more to route a phone call from one place to another. It just even doesn't. in the beginning, like it no. never did. It's wires, oh right? It's electrical signals. Yeah, wires, sure, of course. Yeah. Right? Like, so it was all like, false market, basically. It was exactly. And and wow. so, but I think as kids, because we knew that, we knew we plugged in a little phone cable to our computer and somebody plugged into their computer and it didn't matter if that computer was here or Albuquerque or next door or wherever. It couldn't possibly be. It's just a wire. And so I think that that's that part of like, I still try to remember this. Kids live in the future and they're born in it. And what seems like the way it's always been to us seems very obviously wrong to them. And that's a thing that I am just... I'm still enchanted by it. the end of that, that Ben Affleck story was oh, yeah, that, <laughs> no, it's all right. You know, he's at the, I probably at the height of the like goodwill hunting buzz and you know, he, he's the hot new thing in, in Hollywood. This is this interview about like the internet is coming. And I think there's a similar interview. You see like David Bowie does one of these, like all these. David Bowie was great. Yeah. 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 But Bowie is talking about it as like a conceptual, you know, an artist and somebody who's been in the business a long time. This is somebody who's at the beginning of his career starting to be hot. And he's like, I grew up with computers and I had a motive. And so I know that I'm going to be using this stuff. And the, the matter of fact tone of it, of knowing that he was going to download movies someday at a time when you were still waiting 20 minutes to download a static image. I think there's so many, there's a whole generation of us that just had a glimpse of the future and we said, oh, it's slow and it's a little broken, but this is inevitably coming. And I wonder about in the forties and the fifties, the guys who are drawing up the plan for the Eisenhower highway system. And they're still being taught, you know, at that time in grade school about manifest destiny and all this is sort of very sure. problematic, yeah. you know, narratives, yeah. but, yeah. but, but that you just build a network. And if you build this yeah. network, it'll eventually be everywhere and connect everyone. And I feel like there's just something really deep and profound that echoes like over decades and centuries of like this desire to connect and this desire to be out there. And then once you have had a glimpse of, man, you could be out there in the world that you, you just can never go back. Okay, so let's get into this. Uh, Anil, tell me your name, and then please tell me what you're way too interested in. My name is Anil Dash, and I am way too interested in the highway system and transportation. Okay, so we heard a little bit about this before. Your dad was a highway engineer. Is that right? Did I get that right? Yeah, yeah. He's retired, but he spent 30 years building highways and bridges. So tell me a little bit about what your experience of that was like as a kid before we get into like why you're interested in it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think there's sort of a couple really key 
um, vignettes that sort of jump out to me, of, especially as a kid. One story I remember really distinctly is being 12 years old and he, my dad took me on a work trip with him and he would do this every once in a while. And it was like such a special thing. Like back in those days, in the eighties, you get a slip to get out of school. You can have an absence. It's like, oh, it's educational oh, yeah, big trip. Deal. Yeah. And so I went with him and the, the, the funny thing about it is this, you know, exciting trip was to Albany, New York. And <laughs> I cannot now as an adult think of a less scenic place to possibly go, like the brutalist architecture. And it was in the winter. So we went oh to Albany God. in the winter, oh right? Yeah. But as a 12 year old, I was like a pig in slot, man. I was thrilled. I was like, I'm gonna get to go with dad and like my sister's yep. not coming along. So I don't have to fight about who gets to sit in the front of the car. And you know, it was great. You know, and he took me to a construction site. And so he, my dad is a, has a PhD in soil mechanics, which means wow. I'm gonna make this thing not fall over, right? Whether it's a bridge or a tunnel, highway, whatever it is. And he would tell me stories as we would be on these drives and, and going to places like, you know, a couple of times he took me to where they were drilling tunnels through the mountains in Western Pennsylvania. Because we grew up in Pennsylvania, he worked for the Department of Transportation there. And he would say, you know, early in his career, he had helped build like the foundation of Disney World because it was a swamp. Wow, that's right. build, you know, and wow. so how do you build a theme park in the swamp? Well, you get some really good engineers to be like, this is not going to sink into the, into the swamp, right? Yeah, you got to put something it, in the swamp. Exactly. And, and so he had all these stories where like uh, uh, Seattle Tacoma Airport was built over the water in this marshland. And so he worked I on grew that. up there. I flew out of that many times. Yeah, exactly. So SeaTac and Hartsfeld in, 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 in Atlanta and Disney World. These were the stories that he sort of told me growing up. And then this trip, we go to Albany and it's like they got me um, a construction hat. Which, like, I was so excited. You know, this is like nerdy stuff, but I was like, oh, I got a real construction hat, like a grown-up yeah. one, you know? And to go to the site, and they were putting in steel beams for a bridge. I mean, it was the most prosaic thing in the world. But, like, to see, one, you know, you're a good young man. You, like, you look up to your dad, and he's, like, the guy who's telling them how to do something. But, like, you know, the big truck's going by, and they're pouring concrete, and they're drilling stuff, and they're, you know, they were pile-driving, the, the, you know, the rebar into the ground, and all that kind of, And I was just like... And you make stuff, yeah. you know, like this is a thing that will be here after we're all gone. Well, hopefully, you know, and, and yeah. so like that was really instructive. And then there was just the human side where like, because it was like one on one with my dad, like I said, I wasn't like, you know, elbowing my sister out of the way. And I remember he took me to Pizza Hut and I got to have my own calzone for myself. And I was like, oh, you know, this is the man's table here. You know, exactly. Right. And so, you know, it's just all that stuff sort of blends together. And then there were so many stories like that over the years where like we would be. You know, we'd go to the Atlantic City to go to the beach, you know, and he'd love to go play blackjack or whatever. And we'd be driving down there. And I remember him, you know, on the highway and he sort of pulls off. And, you know, when you have the rumble strips on the side where you go, if yeah, you go sure, across totally. the paint line, cars yeah. rumbling. And he would just like be running over the tire. And brrr, brrr. My mom would be like, you know, what the hell are you doing? Right. And he'd be like, well, these are the new ones. And they rumbled differently. <laughs> so they're more like to wake up. And it was so great because he was like, this is the materials. And he's such a just, I mean, he is the most the biggest caricature of a geek of a nerd like that's awesome thing and he's talking about like what the materials are of the the because you just don't think about it like yeah sure somebody had to pick out what they used to do the rumble on the side of the highway if you're going off the road of and course you know, and you know, I always those things are because some of them are divots and some yeah, of them are little pieces yeah, that go yeah, above yeah, like exactly. somebody makes that and, choice and he's right? like he's like testing them on the on the on the family trip to the <laughs> beach you know and it was such a great like that and, and you know sort of similar stuff of like he'd be like look how reflective that one sign over there is that's using the new formulation of paint for the sign you know and you just be like yeah. and I was I was 100% that kid that read every street sign Oh, me too. every highway me exit too. sign, you know, and and, yeah. and even the like 
on the family road trip, I'd be like, well, mom, this exit has an Arby's and a McDonald's and, you know, yeah. and, and a Roy Rogers, you know, and that, that sense of like, this is important information and I got to, yeah. you know, like I have to pay attention to it. And so that sense of like built environment being a set of choices from real people, people that I knew, people that I met, people that he would introduce yeah. me to that, yeah. that was just such a, a visceral thing. And that did stay with me even, you know, into my career being in the digital world where everybody thinks everything's very ephemeral, but that sense of like, if I look at an app and there's a button in it on my phone, somebody made the choice of why that button, yeah. you know, quote unquote, feels the way it does. And, and, and somebody made that choice. There's a person behind it. And I think that sense of like everything around us was built by somebody making a choice that, I, well, I mean, you could tell like it's, that's 35 years ago and I still, geek out over it and get excited about it. And it still is, I am way too into thinking about who made these things around me. You know, that's so fascinating that you make those connections. Cause of course you hear the internet superhighway as a thing, um, but I've never, <laughs> it used I've to never be really, a big thing. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I've never really thought about how they are similar, right? Like there is a really interesting thing because people on the internet, you lay down, or even like you think about an icon, like the floppy disk icon, people talk yeah. about why is there a floppy disk icon when no one knows what a floppy disk is is because 20 years ago is when it was created in the same way that a road was created 20 years ago. Yeah. I mean, a highway sign still has this little tent on it, right? For yeah. like, this is a rest area. And yeah. it's like, nobody is pulling over on the side of like I-80 and put, pitching a tent, right? Yeah, like, exactly. That's not going to happen. Yeah. And, and, yeah, exactly. and so like we have these symbols that like icons literally, and actually so much of, I mean, there's a million parts of this analogy that actually work. I think, I think the information superhighway was a very thoughtful and considered analogy in so many ways. Mm -hmm. One of which is, you know, funded by the federal government. Right? That yeah. is where it came from. The other is the the real almost hippies who were enthusiasts about it, taking the pretense of, well, this is for national security. So right when the Eisenhower Highway right. System is built, they're like, well, we have to be able to land a plane on the highway in case there's a, you know, a, you know <laughs> right. we have to send a jet and launch it. You know, it's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And the sort of saying was true of the early internet where they're like, well, you know, it's going to be able to survive a thermonuclear war, but we'll be able to send files to each other. And you're like, I think you really just want to email each other. Like, I, you know, like I, I think you're sort of going a little far with this. And, and, and but that sense, I mean, some of this is just like in that moment, and this is only a couple decades apart, you yeah. know, from the 50s to the 70s, you can justify any amount of spending if it's for security. And you're sort of in that moment again. Um, but also- How do we do that for climate change then? That's yeah, I mean, right? I wish, yeah. right? Um, but, but I think that's such an interesting thing, but also the like the sense of, good and bad, right? Where we have all these things where like, we're able to make these great, they're so ambitious in the network that you make that nobody would ever even think it was possible to make. Because yeah. if yeah. you just sort of said, we're gonna set out to have a four lane divided highway within 50 miles of every person in America. Seems insane. That, that, that it's just, it's unfathomable, right? Yeah. And, and, yeah, and yeah. bigger than the moon landing in terms of like yeah. unimaginability. And if you said everybody's gonna be able to instantly message anybody in the in the country, you know, within, within a, a second, that sounds absurd too. And, and so I think yeah. there's just so many parallels there. And those were, um, I mean, now I have a very, you know, kind of intellectualized view of it, but I think as a teenager, I felt that so viscerally. At the moment when I had my, you know, my driver's permit and felt like I was gonna get to go out there in the world was also the moment that I was first really getting online on you know the AOLs of the world and, and and those kinds of services and I and I think it's no coincidence that those are sort of fused together in my mind is that there are these you know that, that analogy why they called it information superhighway and that was when that phrase started getting kicked around was in that era yeah, sure. 
And, and, and it just was like, oh yeah, this makes perfect sense because it's going to do the same thing for us. What, what sort of things do you want to know from our experts? Like this, our expert is really deep dive on the highway system, a bunch of roads yeah. and infrastructure stuff. What kind of things do you want to know from him? I think the thing I'm most obsessed with and, and, and most curious about is, is that Genesis moment where they go from, I think, you know, the first person that, you know, Lewis and Clark were like, man, I wish there was some roads here. Right. <laughs> so like, 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 you don't, you don't, there's always a sense of like, there ought to be something easier to ride over and, you know, yeah. take your, your, your Maybe go through this mountain in a slightly different way than yeah, having to yeah, go all yeah. the way above it's, it. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. Yeah. Like the, the ruts in the road are not great. And so, so it, it is really pleasantly obvious that you would mm. want to do this. And yet, Something turns after you know World War II, where it goes from in everyone's imagination to being executed as reality, mm-hmm. and that flipping of that switch is one of the like wildest things that's ever happened, certainly in American history, but I think worldwide that it happened. And so that's that's the thing I'm really really curious about. And then this is like the really nerdy answer, but the systems, right? Like somebody mm-hmm. had to choose. We're going to drive on the right. Somebody had to choose the line down the middle of the road is going to be double yellow. Right. Why isn't it double white? Why is it yellow? Why is it double? Why isn't it one line? You know, what, what like, like all these things, these are choices. They were invented. Fonts. Right? Why, who chose the, the fonts? fonts? Yeah. The highway fonts. Yeah. Oh, this, yeah. That's actually a thing. Like I, I had done, that's the thing I geeked out about a little bit, but it still is infinitely, I mean, even there, like why are the signs green? Yeah, right? exactly. Like, they, actually, they might, they might fade into the background in half the places you're on. Why are you exactly making green? Right, right. right. Yeah. And, and, and like, and I know I've seen yellow signs, but I don't know why they were yellow yeah. instead of being green. Right. And so yeah. like, I think, I think there's a thing where like literally millions of people made choices and yeah. you look at current American history and you would not have imagined that Wyoming and Hawaii would have the same choice about the width of the line on the side of the road or right. the way that a sign indicates that you should yield to other traffic. And yet, and yet, like the improbable happened. Right. I don't have to, and, and even just the like, you know, I think of the early, like the people talking about the Model T, like one of the things people thought is like, if you ever get a car that can go faster than five or six miles an hour, people are not going to be able to breathe because it, they're not meant to take an oxygen. It was like all this sort of like, you know, folk, Sure. And that that and those people, the people who had bought the Model Ts, were still not only alive but in positions of power at the moment when we decided to build a highway, highway. network. Yeah, and and it's sort of like the people who had thought fax machines were the pinnacle of technology are the ones that decide they were going to build an internet, right? Right. And and so I think that's that thing where I'm, I'm so curious about that, and I don't know who who made who the call. The and how. Who, yeah, sure. Yeah, and, and also just yeah. the systems that persisted. I mean, I think that's the thing I'm sort of fascinated by, and, and this is also very deeply personal, right? So because my my father is an Indian immigrant, you know, my parents were born in India. He came in 1963. And um, the immigration laws in the, in the US didn't really change until 65 to, to let in people from India and, and other South Asian countries. And he was let in because because the highway system was deemed to be of national interest. And of a national oh, wow, really? Interest. Interesting. Yeah. And because he was going to get a PhD and sort of study this stuff. So it was this very, today they have an equivalent uh, visa called an alien of extraordinary ability, which is a great term. <laughs> Definitely feel welcome yeah. if somebody calls you that. Yeah, exactly. It's like a common um, title or something. Yeah, yeah. It's very, yeah. It's like an Avengers kind of thing. And I, I just think about this a lot is the, you know, my family's from one of the poorest and most rural parts of India and my cousins are still there. Uh, the, the state is called Orissa and it's sort of okay. the Eastern part of the diamond. And 
you know, most folks in America have friends that are like, oh, I've been to Bengal or Punjab or New Delhi, you know, or Bangalore. It ain't none of those, right? Like this right. is like being from sort of rural Louisiana is kind of where we're mm -hmm. from. Interesting, yeah. And, you know, the highways there are just starting to be improved. Dirt roads though, right? Everywhere. Yeah. And the reason that I'm not there, the only reason I'm not there in the rice paddies with my cousins is my dad had this knowledge and this knowledge was something that America felt was valuable enough to make an exception. Mm. And what it was, was they valued literally highways that much, <laughs> even more than they valued keeping out somebody like him. And, and that's something that, you know, the, you always have the questions in life, but it's like, I, I, I think that's one of those forever questions for me is like, how did we come to care so much about this abstract thing that the conventional wisdom was could never exist. And that, and that rapidly went into being inevitable and ubiquitous and nobody even thinks about it. That's just always been there. Uh, you're right. I've never thought about the immensity of that thing that we have in front of us now in the same way that I don't, I don't think, I know I've thought about this more, but the immensity of the internet. And I also wonder like, what is the next immense thing or will there even be one? Because now mm -hmm. we maybe can't get along so well, but um, okay, yeah. well, let's take a break. We're going to come back with our expert and yeah, we'll be right back. Way too interested. Okay, before we get to our expert guest, I want to uh, use this in-between time to recommend one of my favorite things. Uh, last week, I recommended a podcast. I'd like to do that again. This time, I'm going to recommend a podcast called The Content Minds. Uh, this is a real deep dive on internet culture stuff. So if you like internet culture and you want to kind of find um, some interesting things uh, and go deeper on that, and this is a deep, deep dive. Like So um, Ryan Broderick, who runs a, a newsletter called Garbage Day, um, makes this podcast with a partner who I honestly, I'm very sorry, I can't remember his name. His name is Luke something, um, but it's great. Uh, they dive into what kind of weirdness happened on the internet that week. If you're an internet person or you're just kind of curious about super strange things that happen on the internet, uh, it's a really good one to listen to. All right, so Anil and I are about to be joined by our guest expert. His name is Dan McNichol. Uh, he is a highway expert. He uh, not only has written multiple books about highways, but he worked for the government for a while. He was a White House appointee and was pre uh, served President Clinton in the transportation and infrastructure areas. Uh, he's also worked on a bunch of huge infrastructure projects, including California high-speed rail, the uh, Bay Bridge replacement, a bunch of things. Uh, the book that he wrote about the highway system is called The Roads That Built America. Uh, so I think you're going to learn a lot here. Uh, I know that I did. Uh, take a listen, and thanks so much. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, we are now joined by Dan McNichol. He is an infrastructure expert and the author of many books, including The Roads That Built America. Dan, welcome to Way Too Interested. Thanks for being here. Gavin, it's a privilege to be here, too. And thanks, Neil. Thank you both. I'm excited to talk to you. Um, before I let Anil kind of grill you, because he's got a lot of good questions for you, can you tell me a little bit about your backstory? Like, how did you get in? How did you get into roads? This is what I was wondering. I was like, well, how do you how do you get into roads as a human? That's a, that's a very good point. In the back seat of of the family station wagon, going up between Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard, and Philadelphia, and my father was a road builder. His father was a road builder. Evidently, many road builders back in our family, and we just talked always about the roads. And they were building the interstate system when I was a kid and we were driving up through New York through, uh, all along these new sections of highway. And it was uh, it was from that, that that got me started and focused on highways. 
Oh, that's so funny. Da- you know, Anil's dad also worked on roads. So you guys have something in common. That's really interesting. Well, Anil, I'm going to let you take over. So go for it. What do you got to ask? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I have a million questions. I-, I think, you know, talking to Gavin about this, I'm realizing like, I-, I think these are always like kind of stories of fathers and sons and definitely having that moment in the backseat of the car. I am still fascinated by the audacity of the Eisenhower highway system. Like, I feel like it's the sort of thing where, I mean, the classic thing now somebody says like if you proposed it now nobody would ever say yes but also the it so quickly became accepted as just part of the world like almost like it had been you know like just born there so i'm curious how did we go from i mean people were building highways from the beginning of the country and even before there was a country in america but like somebody must have had a thought of we ought to have roads everywhere and then all of a sudden after world war ii it somehow becomes possible to start actively building it. Like what was the change that happened that made that sort of possible? It's an excellent point, Anil. You know, roads really began in the water. The the first roads were shipping channels Mm. and everything else was considered artificial. Artificial roads went across land. Uh, George Washington said, we need to build an artificial way out to the West because we need to keep this country together or the British or the Spanish will take it over. So as a young president and a new new country, we began this great effort right away, building an interstate system the federal government paid for, and it was called the National Road. And, and Eisenhower, just jump way ahead, he developed this idea around anything good for the country and the industrial complex, not the military industrial complex, but just industry, would be good for defense, would be good for national security. So it was Eisenhower's passion and his knowledge. He was a a military genius. He knew how to manipulate roads. He did that in Europe. The first vehicles off the landing craft under heavy German fire were bulldozers and cranes to build roads Mm. off the beach and into Germany. So this man came back and he had studied the Autobahn when he took over Germany and he developed this mission of his own to build brand new and a super highway system crisscrossing the United States like the Autobahn. And that's really the footprint. That's really the beginning of his of his passion and his focus. And he wrote in his biography, the Autobahn got me thinking about the the needs for wider ribbons across America. So that's so extraordinary because I, I think that's like, it, it makes sense because I think we were in a moment of building, right? So, so I guess a lot of the folks maybe came home from the war and became folks building the highways after that, right? These guys decided to get behind the bulldozers again. But I'm also curious about like almost the political will though too, right? Because were there people, there must've been people that are like, no, let's not do this bigger project or let's not spend all this money on this. Or certainly even that that framing of Washington calling these artificial roads, which is actually really interesting. I I think that maybe we should bring that framework back. But (laughs) but I I think the, the thing that's really curious to think about this, somebody must've been like, well, we, you know, what about the natural land and and how do we where are we going to spend all this money to to displace nature like i'm curious what the objections were or what people did to try and stop it almost nothing anil and 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 i think you made an excellent point like it happened just at the right time to allow this huge land grab i mean this is the states own these highways the federal government does not but the federal government pays the bills so everyone plays along with the federal government. Everyone voluntarily, I say everyone as in all the states, put up these red, white, and blue shields that mark the 
this is a long name that only a bureaucrat could love, but it's the National System for Interstate and Defense Highways. The Dwight D. Eisenhower, the Dwight D. Eisenhower National System for Interstate and Defense Highways. And that that is what's so remarkable about this. It's it's brand new. He greenfielded this. He, he didn't want to improve these uh, highways incrementally. He said, F it. We're just going to go over here to the farm and the fields, and we're just going to build exactly what we need. And it ended up preserving a lot of America, a lot of the blue highways, the back roads were preserved yeah. because we built this massive system on the other side. I love the shoehorn defense into the title That's exactly too. what I was going to ask. Like, because uh, one thing we talked about was the idea that like defense and military might might have been why this got made. Did that have anything to do with disability? Like, was it something to do with it? Yeah, it, it did. It had everything to do with it. And Eisenhower, not Kennedy, created NASA because he wanted to get ballistic missiles out of the Pentagon. He warned us when he left office about the military industrial complex. Eisenhower wanted peace. His mother was a pacifist, if you can believe it, an anti-war activist. And, and he was a strange character. He, he came on board and he called what he, he did what he called waging peace. So during the Cold War, which was actually quite hot in spots, he decided what we need to do in, in America is build up our industrial complexes. That way we'll be more powerful, more ready than ever for military conflict, whatever comes our way. And 9-11 was this remarkable, couldn't script it moment that the interstate system kicked into high gear for just the reasons that Eisenhower knew we might need them for. Not not the specifics of planes into towers, but just the need that, that our airlines were crippled, the interstate system would suffice. He was a big believer in, in, in roads and ground transportation. Interesting. Wow, that's so interesting thinking of a highway system is essentially enabling a, a ground front in a cold war that, I mean, in, in retrospect, that makes more sense to me. It's like, that's like a really key insight is like, if you frame it as defense, there's unlimited budget for it. Well, Miniman missiles, make no mistake about it. were being moved around the interstate system. The bridges had to be 16 feet high. So military missiles could get underneath them, but really the real military purpose, the defense, the name in the, in the long name, defense is really all about building up economic strength that, and an industry that would allow us to, to mobilize quickly. So the other thing that jumps out to me, other than the improbability of the whole thing, is, <laughs> is, and I can't think of a more sort of eloquent way to put it, but like, it is stunning that actually the roads are the same in shape and color and, and dimension and, and signage in Hawaii as in Wyoming. Oh, when I wrote my book, I went to Hawaii for a tax tax deferred uh, <laughs> research trip. It's and very it's, important highway research in Hawaii. Okay? And it's H1, it's H2, and it's H3. And I asked the senior official in Hawaii, like, what, why, you know, does H1 go north and south like they do in the United States, the odds and the evens? And he's like, no, no, we we look at the mountains and we look at the ocean and we, we, we don't use these numbers as a way to get around <laughs> But it's a beautiful system in Hawaii, and it's it's a it's a trip. But those red, white, and blue shields—that that is the genius of this system. Is it's 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 uniform. It's simple. You can get all across the country. No stoplights. I mean, that's the big the big shout out. But that is mind blowing. And when you start thinking of this as a system, it's sixty two super highways. It's thirty five of them going north and south, and twenty seven going east and west. 
all the round numbers like 90 and 80 go coast to coast and 95, 55, 25, they all go north and south, Canada to, to Mexico or Gulf of Mexico or Texas. Uh, can I ask you a question before we go off the history stuff? So one of the things I'm always curious about with America is obviously you have these states' rights versus national rights, right? Were there, mm -hmm. there must have been people in the states who were like, you're not coming through my state with this system. And did Eisenhower just bully them through that? Or did the, any of those questions come up? Well, you know, that that's going back to Anil's point about the timing. Uh, the most victorious general in the world in American history, most popular president ever at that time, he could convince anybody of anything almost at that time. Mm -hmm. And he really led this massive coalition. He turned it on to the states. It's an excellent point, Gavin. He said to the states, you build it. I just want it. You go figure out how to fund it. You go figure out between yourselves where it goes, but we're going to do this. And it was a mind bending proposition. And he got it through. That was the political genius of Eisenhower. And, and I think because he was such a great leader, he had those political skills up, uh, as well as this, the engineering and the scientific and the military prowess to, to push this through. Did they all like get it done on time? Did they actually? Did, I mean, that's my question. Like, I can't imagine fifty states all working together to complete. It, it took a couple decades time. longer than yeah, that. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, it was going to be done in 1969. They, they signed the legislation in 1956, June 29th. He was in the hospital at Walter Reed Hospital in Washington. He signs the legislation. No photographs. No photo ops. The most remarkable piece of legislation that transformed America, modernized America. And yeah, it, it was going to be done in 1969. It went to about 2008. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, what's a half a century amongst friends? Right? They, built, they built half of it inside of 10 years. And I call that in my book, the interstate decade. It was even National Geographic was gushing as these bulldozers were ripping apart America and building these superhighways. But they they built the easy miles first, so they could because they knew they could get those done. But they well, going this is in, also during the height of the space race and everything too, right? It was, and and he built those big rural sections, those big connector sections between the states, and that's all Eisenhower ever wanted. But he learned what, while he was still in his presidency that the systems was going through cities and he never sanctioned that he never wanted that to happen so because that's really interesting because that's a part that i'm definitely obsessed with is the the urban impact and the community impact totally uh, I, I, a quick question though i want to sort of get to this like why <laughs> i think i keep asking in 10 different ways like why did it work it shouldn't have worked right and, and i think there's this part which is like i mean in this country even like we had different currency in every state for the first dozen years Right. Like there was like nothing, nothing in common. Yeah. And yet this thing is extraordinarily consistent and there's a set of specifications, but also they follow the specifications. I mean, like that's mm -hmm. the amazing thing is like I would have assumed at least I mean, we look in the current historical moment. Not every state is going to follow, you know, the recommendations of federal, you know, uh, what they're going to call federal bureaucrats. Like I'm curious about like w was there pushback or was it just that, that that had that air of inevitability such that they just accepted even the you know the highway standards or the fact that like they would be renumbering some of these classic highways and things like that you know eisenhower was a poor boy from kansas and i think he was about the most pure moral president we've ever had this was a sound noble design people believed him people trusted him and the mm -hmm. states 
They all wanted highways. They all wanted these things. They didn't even understand the significance of limited access, how that would be a safer highway, a more efficient highway. They just wanted that largesse. They just knew that Eisenhower knew what he was talking about. And this thing was going to be just great. And it turned out to be the case. And I, it sounds like a howdy doody moment back in the fifties. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> kind of it, was. It's surreal. I mean, it just yeah. sounds like, like, like you, it's almost unbelievable. Right. And and also like, I mean, that could be a great man and a great moment and all those kinds of things. But I mean, there certainly have been other great people and leaders and, and great ideas. And yet this thing just has this momentum that seems. FDR had a, a plan for building some highways across the country, crisscrossing them. Uh, but Eisenhower had the bandwidth, he had the popularity, he had the vision, and he knew that it was urgent. And he pushed it hard, he sold it hard, he, he knew how to sell this during the State of the State addresses. And he talked about carnage on the highways, he talked about the, the chance of a nuclear holocaust that we had to get out in front of. He knew that we wouldn't be able to like, evacuate a city ahead of time, but what he knew we could do is rebuild those cities that got struck along the highways. And if you think about what happened on 9-11, it's kind of what he was talking about. Like cranes were rushed to lower Manhattan along the interstate system. I followed the story of a crane leaving the Caterpillar plant in Peoria, getting right to lower Manhattan because it had the certain reach that they needed. Yeah, I remember. And, I was here. And, yeah, exactly. And the planes were grounded. And what, what, what happened? Trucks went on the interstate system to the airports, unloaded precious cargoes like bloods and organs and 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 pushed them out into the interstate system. And they hauled ass and connected cities and kept the economy going. You know, it was an attack on our economy, but this interstate system sufficed us. And the interstate system brought healthcare and a whole better quality of life in the South. It brought national, I would say it probably brought down uh, civil rights. It, it's, 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 just, it's both about equity and, and inequity. Like the, the divide. You never thought the about the freedom riders as they were riding on highways, right? Colin Powell, uh, I had a chance to talk to him. He said that it was the interstate system that they stuck to when they were driving in the South because they yeah. could go to a holiday and they could right. go to a national chain. Yeah. And he felt they always felt safest on those roads. I, I, I think to, about that part a lot. I think there's, you know, um, the, the original plan that the Eisenhower era folks worked from was the Yellow Book. That's right. It was just sort of laying out the plan for the highways. You must have read The Roads That Built America. I have it on the list, but, 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 but that's actually, that, that was one of the reasons that I had looked it up is I, I, I had seen, you know, the, the sort of conversations about the Yellow Book. And, and the thing that jumps out to me is at the same moment in history, you know, Black Americans create the Green Book. Uh, talking about the safe yeah. places that they can travel, yeah. um, you know, in the country. And, and I just think the resonance, I mean, obviously it's just, it's just names and, you know, coincidence in those things, but there, there's just such a resonance to like, here's this plan from, well, some of the most powerful people that have ever lived in the history of the country. And they're talking about their grand vision of how to, how you can get around. And then some of the most disempowered people, you know, building power for each other with, what is also a set of maps. I mean, it, it, that's what's wild about it, is they're sort of saying you go to this town, you can stay in this boarding house or in this hotel and, and they'll, you'll be okay. And, and I, I feel like those are sort of the, like the two most important map documents of the middle of the last century, you know, for American history. It's like you, you put those together and that's the whole story. It is. And, and what, what happened in cities, and this is what Eisenhower was trying to avoid, was it became very expensive to build these roads, but they also were very destructive to neighborhoods and they yeah. pushed in through, and there were, there were protests saying white man's roads through black men's homes. And it was true. 
And, and that's the devastating part about the interstate system. It really shouldn't have gone into the downtowns, deep into the downtowns, to them, ring roads around them, like Eisenhower saw in Germany, but mm-hmm. not, not through them, not into them. And that's why we see the Embarcadero not getting rebuilt after the earthquake in California. That's why we see a lot of pressure to stop highways, take them down. You know, they talk about Claiborne Street, which is in my book in New Orleans. It was a beautiful street with beautiful towering oak trees and it was like community where music really was born black music and jazz in in new orleans and they built i-10 right through it just Mm -hmm. devastated it Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think you know i I live in lower manhattan and we're just now having a conversation about bringing part of the fdr drive down back to surface rather than elevated uh, sort of parallel to what happened with the embarcadero in san francisco And, and it feels like the culmination of you know, Jane Jacobs uh, a half a century ago, you know, pushing back on uh, what had been the plan was to put highways through Manhattan, right? I mean, this is the sort of Robert Moses era is to do this. And and really, I think if not for people seeing how destructive the Cross Bronx was, there might not have even been enough momentum to stop it. I'm curious about like how much was that the, it sounds to me like that wasn't the original vision of what the highways were going to be. This was sort of the zealots who took it and ran with it. Yeah, and, and very few people making some big decisions. The interstate system is entirely different than these parkways and these urban highways that were developed outside of it, uh, in that the interstate system was developed to connect capital cities, connect commerce, to connect states. And it's, it's this brick and mortar model of democracy. It's a volunteer arrangement between these states, these different governments, like you were saying. And that's what I find so mind bending. I'm totally in agreement with you, Anil. The remarkability of this massive greatest ever engineering endeavor is its political success is, is that the fact that people signed on for it and the state signed on for it and it all got built all of it as originally planned yeah, that's incredible um i'm curious about like within sort of the community of builders and people who think about this stuff at a systems level what is the feeling about that turn i think of this almost as the turn from the 50s and 60s into the 70s and 80s is is we go from you said there was a decade of of, of the highway right where, where people are sort of connecting the major arteries around the country and then and then that turn into you know i guess the phrase they used at the time was urban renewal but it was plowing highways through vulnerable neighborhoods and through a lot of the most marginalized communities like is that a thing that within you know the conversations of people who build roads and who think about these systems like that that they that's sort of two chapters or is that like this was all of one piece. Like, I'm, I'm curious about like that because from outside and being a lay person, like that seems like a, well, it actually feels a lot like I'm a, I'm a tech guy and like, you know, in the early days of social media, we were so optimistic about this is going to connect everybody and we're all going to form these great bonds together and we're going to be able to instantly, you know, communicate all of which came true. And then the second half was like, oh, by the way, there's some other stuff that's going to come with it. And it, and it, it feels very much like that kind of uh, be careful what you wish for moment. And, and, and it, once it gets out, like it becomes this, it morphs into this being of its own. You know, Eisenhower had a lot of influence as he birthed it, but yeah, it took on different dimensions everywhere it went. I, you know, it's, it's fascinating because I ended up working for the White House on transportation policy. That brought me to Boston, where I became the spokesperson for the biggest project in U.S. history at the time. It was called the Big Dig, mm-hmm. and they took down a highway. It was called the Central Artery, the Green Monster, the other Green Monster, not the one in Fenway. And 
they took it down because it was blocking the waterfront from from downtown. These historic sight lines, these historic pathways were being totally blocked. And they put it into a tunnel underneath. It's now the Tip O'Neill Tunnel. But the remarkability of that is that this is all federal highway money. This is all interstate money. The last dollar and the last mile of interstate funding for new highways, you know, for the for the original system was in Boston to complete mm. to complete to take down that highway and to also connect I-90 coming all the way from Seattle, 3,000 plus miles to the airport. So this is like the star on the Christmas tree, right? This is like the yes. <laughs> And after that, it was the expansion of the original system. So in, from a system standpoint, you know, the original system was finally built. And that that project in Boston was really about transit. It was about the water. It was about the environment. And it was also about increasing some capacity of the highways, but putting it underground where people wouldn't see it. Hmm. How, yeah, also, I was going to say, the, the thing about the Big Dig that I always think about is that clearly there was also, though, it kind of, when the Eisenhower was able to push stuff through so quickly, the Big Dig had a lot of other issues, right? Like, there was a lot of other things going on there. Do you think, like, it was just a sense of like a totally different environment of having to make a huge project like that. Yeah. I think Ronald Reagan, when he signed the legislation said, I've never seen so much pork in all my life. Not since I handed out blue ribbons at the Iowa state fair. And he signed the legislation that funded the big dig, but it was the political alignment. You know, it's a microcosm of the interstate system in Massachusetts. Tip O'Neill was in the house or he had just left. Mike Dukakis was the governor they were all driving this Barney Frank, all these famous names from the past, Ted Kennedy, and they pushed and pushed and got this legislation through that included the big dig money. So it was a very hyper local issue with national funding. I'm curious amongst the builders, the engineers, the planners, policy people, how has the culture changed? Like I think about like so much has shifted in well, in every creative endeavor, right? But but this is something where like, even our understanding of what the highways mean to us, like one, during a moment of reckoning around climate change, during a moment of reckoning around, you know, racial justice, which is a huge factor in where the highways were built. And all these sort of bigger issues, all of a sudden, what had been a, I think really when I was a kid, was seen as an unalloyed good. It's just like, well, this is, yeah, the natural order of things. So we're gonna build highways everywhere. Right. And, and certainly that was how I felt going with my dad to a construction site where he was, you know, consulting on. And and now it seems like we have these other things to answer for, which are like, are we going to just keep enabling cars versus other transit uh, transportation models? Are we right? And obviously, like shipping and, 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 and you know, uh, trucks and all these other things happen on highways. But the, the narrative, the, the public consciousness is shaped by cars and our very fraught relationship there. I'm curious, like what's happened in the culture of builders where like, how do they feel about if you're somebody who makes highways, how do you see your job differently than you did 10 years ago or the cohort cohort of people doing 20 years ago did? It's totally generational. And the, I feel like I'm in the bridge generation, like the older guys who did this and they were all guys were very proud of the work. They were like these men that you were talking about, Gavin, they came out of tanks and they started operating bulldozers. You know, they believed in what they were doing. They, they believed that this was the most economical way to do it, to go through a park or to go through a poor neighborhood because that's where it was cheapest land. That just made economic sense to them. Now, you don't talk about highways. You know, if you had a young engineer here right out of school, they, they'd be talking about 
well, you're not just going to build an interchange. You're also going to build some parks. You're going to be building transit. You're going to be building bike lanes all around this area. You know, you can't do a highway improvement project without everyone saying, well, what else, what are you going to do to make this better than it would be if it was just a highway? And that's what I, I think we're seeing highway projects now as infrastructure. Now we're seeing them as land banks. Now we're seeing them as pathways, maybe for hyperloop or high-speed rail, certainly for solar, certainly for, for, for broadband. And I mean, that's just so stunning to me. I, I, I had you know mentioned to Gavin, my family is here in America because my father is a highway engineer and you know, he came in 1963 before the immigration laws changed because having that skill set of being, uh, uh, you know, a PhD in soil mechanics was so valuable to building bridges and tunnels and highways that they're like, we'll let you in, even though you know, that, that's, <laughs> that, that, that's, that's not something we do a lot of. Like he was one of those rare exceptions. And so in a very real way, my entire life is a result of America valuing the highway system even more than its traditional rules about who could immigrate and who was allowed to, to succeed and thrive here. And so like, this is this really sort of profound and deep thing. It's like, why, what is it about the culture of our country and the, and the narrative of our country? You know, and we've been told all these myths, whether it's George Washington or, or cowboys or all these different things. What is it that makes us want this so bad? Hmm. Freedom of mobility. We, we just we just can't sit still. We cannot not be on a road. We are, we are a road culture. We're about transportation. We're about movement. And ever since these GIs came back, all they wanted to do was buy a big car, get you know, fill up their car with gas, and hit the road. Mm-hmm. The interstate system was really by its master designer, master builder, Eisenhower, for industry and for trucking. He knew that. Yeah. It was, yeah. That's why he built it. The station wagon filled with kids like me and my dad and my family, that was how they sold it. And it, 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 it worked. It worked. And we both use it. We, and who knew that we wouldn't be commuting on trains, that we'd be commuting in cars, on highways. It's reached a point, a tipping point where we just overinvested and, and there's going to be change. And the highway culture has taken a, a almost stop. Very few states are allowing big projects to go forward, as you mentioned. The interstate system is done, but people still want to expand it, like Highway 49 in Mississippi and uh, down in New Orleans. That those are popular projects, but they've been stalled for for decades, and they may not get built. Hmm. Uh, can I ask you about the proliferation of air travel and how that affected the highway system? Like, like one of the things I think about a lot is. Clearly, there was a time in the 50s and 60s and 70s where the majority of people traveled by car, right? If you're going to travel, you might you know, travel. But now, I mean, it's obviously, it's still a very privileged place to be flying all the time. But air travel is much more frequent now. Like, do people, are, are, is there less funding that goes to highways because of that? Like, has there been a change? Well, we're a wealthy country with lots of resources and the, and the private industry of airlines has benefited greatly from municipalities that own these 500 major airports in the United States. Mm-hmm. Aviation is fascinating. Eisenhower was on his deathbed talking to John Volpe, this very famous uh, Secretary of Transportation that he appointed, Nixon appointed. But he met with Eisenhower right before he passed away, and Eisenhower was excited about the interstate system and how it was going to connect to airports. So this idea of connecting ports and airports and train stations and downtowns was just exactly what he was hoping would happen. And he knew it was going to transform America. He had no idea how much so, though. And 
I, I, you know, I, I can't help but to think that Eisenhower would be very disappointed that we hadn't stayed on top of the infrastructure, developed it, invested in it, and that we weren't using Hyperloop technology or high-speed right. rail. He was the first first one to ever go down, or first president to ever go down in a nuclear submarine. He was the first president to, to fly a jet. You know, he, he really was forward-thinking. He was about transformation and technology. I actually didn't know all this stuff about Eisenhower. I feel like he's one of the presidents who kind of gets left out of my yeah, educational yeah. system. You know? Maybe he'll be moving up over time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah maybe. No, 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 I, I've become friendly with the family. And let me just tell you, I just, I just wrote my book. But, you know, he at the time when I was writing this, he was seen as kind of a sycophant, like a fan of the wealthy. That's how people saw him. He was also the, the only president, I think, to get a hole in one in golf. But you know, people blobbed <laughs> onto him. That's people not hurting were, the, the, the hanging out with rich people problem. Yeah, laissez yeah. <laughs> faire. But you know what? He was super focused, and and people gravitated to him. He was not chasing anybody. I promise mm. you. But what he did was successfully get everybody to agree on this. Everyone wanted it, but everyone was fighting about who was going to pay for it. And he kept working it. And he finally got the purse strings in Congress to figure out a way to pay for it. It was called a trust fund, a highway trust fund. What, what were the biggest mistakes made in the way that highways happened in America? Like if, if we weighed the magic wand and we were to start over now, what would we do differently? Uh, we'd be a lot more sensitive and light on the land. We, we wouldn't be going through some of these precious areas. A lot of states, you know, the federal government would say, it's up to you. you got to get the right of way. We can't come in here and take property as a federal force. It has to be done by the states. And the states went in there and did the evils themselves by taking, I don't know, it could have been swampland. It could have been a national park or a state park. Excuse me. It had to be a state park. But they would fork over city parks and state parks to allow highways to go through them. And... I'd say the biggest mistake. And a lot of vulnerable communities too, right? Yeah, like whether for sure. Yeah. Reservations or, or, you know, inner cities or whatever. Totally. So both the, the biggest mistakes were damaging the environment more than they needed to, but maybe even worse, uh, going through the downtowns, you know, a different type of environment, an urban environment, but so horrifically damaging to the communities that they tore apart. Yeah. yeah. That's, I, I mean, it, it's, it's funny because I think it's sort of, not funny, but it's striking because I think it, that's sort of inseparable from the image of what highways are now. And, you know, there was a moment, you know, several decades ago where like that wasn't the mainstream narrative. Like those communities knew, but I don't think, you know, the, I grew up in the suburbs. Like I didn't know, you know, any of that story. And and I, so I think there was almost this idealized version that we were given. And that was definitely the version I saw, you know, going with my dad to construction sites. And, and, and you know, I, like, I, I actually am glad, grateful for it to have been complicated from that. But then I try to think about a path forward. And, you know, one of the things that's been really fascinating to me is been seeing intentional places of either, as we said, like taking an elevated highway and making it surface level to be able multi-mode trans, you know, transport or, uh, even reclamation of, you know, highways that are underutilized into more sort of local paths and, and you know, that kind of thing. I'm curious about like, what does, what do highways evolve into? Right. Cause I, I think the thing that I imagined as a kid was like, you know, better rest stops and, <laughs> and, 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 you know, that, that kind of thing, but it seems to be like, that is probably not the area of innovation. Well, to your point about air travel, the most heavily traveled domestic route in the United States is between San Francisco and Los Angeles. I spent a year working on the California high-speed rail project. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a heartbreak because 
we don't have a housing crisis in this country as much as we have a transportation crisis. And, and the housing bottled up in, in Silicon Valley, bottled up in Los Angeles, could have been broken loose with high-speed rail. And it's not even 1% done. It's just a sad show, a goat rodeo, really. But that would have eliminated so much of that unnecessary travel by plane. What keeps, which, us, what keeps us from being able to move on, on high-speed rail? there it's, you know it's, i think about this where like i used to go from i'm in manhattan i used to go to dc all the time and we had a cello which if you squint is high speed but it's, <laughs> it's sort it's of like really. you're going yeah. you're going regular speed but you're leaning forward while you do yeah, it exactly. but, yeah. i saw a verizon commercial on there and people are rocking back and forth and i'm like oh my god they're in it they're they're actually accurate they're showing a slow <laughs> yeah, long range train yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, but, I always uh, think of like if you're if you're crossing the street and there's a car coming, you, you do the thing where you lean forward. You're walking the same speed, but you lean forward, <laughs> yeah. So it looks like you're Try going to make faster. sure you look. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's what a cello feels like. like yeah. Does it now does it look like we're going fast? It, it goes fast for I swear to you, I think it's like ten miles in Rhode Island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but Excella is a great example of why we you know it's the most demanded route between Boston and New York is just money. Washington too, and we can't get out of our own way. I see it I, in California. It's the same thing. When I was out there in 2016, Trump was running for president, and it was these uh, Republican farmers in the Central Valley that lived in Monterey. They weren't even living in the Central Valley that that stopped the train. They 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 just went to court every single chance they got. They put solar fields in the path of the train just to slow it down. Mm. They they did not want Jerry Brown's train to be going through their their yeah. agricultural land and that's that was a mistake of choice like they should have just gone down the five you know they should have gone down the interstate system mm-hmm. instead they, jerry brown wanted to go through all the towns in the central valley for good reasons but i think that was a fatal flaw we lost the war i don't think that system will ever get built and fresno has these super duper highway you know super super fast high-speed rail ramps all over the city and there'll be monuments to a project that will never be built. So actually, I want to follow up with like something that Neil and I talked about earlier was how there's a connection between the interstate highway and this inner, you know, the internet superhighway, um, both of which were kind of like forced to be built, right? Like they were both forced to be built. Do you think we've, is there a possibility that there's something else in the future that could ever be forced to be built? Or have we like crossed over into the world where we will never be able to do that again? <laughs> That's a good question. And I, I believe that we will be doing something grand and big again. And I, I hope it's broadband, but that remains to be seen. But but yeah, I mean, Anil, like, come on, off and on ramps, the, the system, the connectivity, the superhighway. Yeah, the internet was a construct of the military. You know, the first email went out of MIT in the 1971. I mean, it's advanced research projects. You know, uh, DARPA is where the internet was born, and and, and defense being in that title, I think performed exactly the same roles it did in the in the highway law, right? Which is like now it's now it's a bottomless bucket of money, right? Like we are you going to let the hippies use it as long as you're on this thing, Exactly. I mean, I guess this is this is not a question with an answer, but like, is there another Ike out there, right? Because I think of like I, I have a lot of criticisms of him, but I, I think of the zealous following that Elon Musk has. And I think his acolytes see him as an Ike type where they're like, he's doing these big things. Now, I think actually he's not very thoughtful. I mean, part of it is like, you know, he was, as we are recording this, he was just talking about 
you know, there's too much traffic in LA and we need to build a, you know, uh, another tunnel underneath this. And I'm like, more lanes doesn't mean less traffic, right? It means more traffic. But let me guess, he wants to put a Tesla inside the tunnel. Of course, right. right. It's like, <laughs> it's like, you know, a Tesla in every pot. And, 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 and so I think that's this thing where I'm like, but what it speaks to more broadly, I think culturally, separate from like, this guy is the richest guy in the world and still wants to make even more money is... There are people that want somebody to tell them we're going to do big things. We're going to go into space and we're going to have electric cars and we're going to, you know, build tunnels in the ground. And I mean, I think there is a celebration of, well, this guy can go to politicians and tell them we're going to build a tunnel and all of a sudden they're taking the meeting. Now, it doesn't mean it gets done. And I don't think his plans are I think he actually lacks all of Ike's actually haven't gone to war and built them and built the, you know, the the roads kind of thing. But but I think that's that's this it speaks to how hungry people are for that. Well, Eisenhower was not a popular president and, and only very recently has he become considered by a lot of historians uh, top five presidents of the United States. If you look at Eisenhower, I would compare him to Lincoln and I would compare him to Washington. All three are war presidents. All three came out of a period. Eisenhower was a president during the Korean War, but right after. But my point being, military geniuses, they understood the, the, the need. Lincoln began the Transcontinental Railroad during the Civil War. We, he's at in a civil war, not just a a media frenzy and a, and a crisis, but real bullets, real blood. And he builds this transcontinental railroad because he knows it's going to unify the country. Washington wanted to unify the country. Eisenhower wanted to unify the country. So I think infrastructure is the answer. And we will come back to something. And I hope it's broadband because that's the easy, that's the best thing for transportation. Get people off the road. How big of a project is that broadband right now? Is it is it massive? Like, are we staring down the barrel of a ton of it, or is a lot of it already done? Like, where I don't even have a sense of where it's at. It's the politics, and it's the fiber that we need. And and the fiber, it's like the last mile and the first mile. The last mile into people's homes, it's right. all copper. So nothing's happening that is the magic that you're experiencing in South Korea or these other countries with broadband. My wife's in nursing and dermatology. She, she could be seeing people and not having them drive all over New England to get to her office uh, if, they, if we had fiber optic broadband. Yeah, this is a space that uh, probably where our interests cross and, and you know, being on the tech side of it. Really interestingly, I mean, there's there's a lot of all the usual cultural social battles happening in tech right now, but there's really broad consensus around the importance of broadband, kind of no matter whether you are, you know, the most uh, stubborn headed, you know, Facebook worker or the most like idealistic, you know, young person in college who's building open source technology, like they all agree, like this is this path and this is what we need to catalyze innovation and access and equity and all these things that we care about. Right. Um, and, and interestingly, it's been it's been really striking to see uh, the conversation around 5G, right? Is the, the faster wireless phone standard that everybody treats like it's inevitable. But what's interesting about it is, you know, even Apple did their big announcement, like 5G is here and it's real, buy your new iPhones, right? And it's like, it doesn't work. And it doesn't it kind of and it doesn't work in a big way. Like it's really like one of these, like if you stand by this pole in this one town, you're gonna get a good connection. Yeah, and it's really it's, bad for rural areas too, right? Yeah, exactly. It's really right, terrible. Right, yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. It's like as long as the sun isn't shining on you yeah. and, and and you know, you, you don't have it, you know, your your shoes have good rubber soles, then you're gonna be okay. And so it's it's really absurd kind of thing. And so like it doesn't work in 
dense cities and it doesn't work in r- really oh, you know, spread I out. Realize it doesn't areas. work in dense cities either. Like it's bad. There yeah. It's, it's, it's sort of, it's right bad out. in different ways, but it's yeah. bad everywhere. <laughs> and, and, and I think that's this thing where I'm like, but, but before it was really obvious that this thing doesn't work. And I'm not saying it could never work just today. It doesn't work. There was an air of inevitability around it. Right. And, and I think some of this is just like how consumers understand technology or any of these trends. Right. Which is like, well, I had a 3G phone and then I had a 4G phone. So clearly next year I got to get a 5G phone. Right. Like that's just common sense. And then, you know, what it turned into really quickly was the geopolitics of these chips being controlled by manufacturers in China that we don't know what their agenda is and how much it costs. And so I'm struck by this like desire for this technocratic solution when what we're talking about broadband is mostly kind of digging ditches and running wires. Mm. Right. And, and, and it's not, I mean, yeah, it might be fiber optic instead of copper, but it's not advanced technology, right? It's like a, it's a spool on your shoulder that you're unrolling into a hole in the ground for a while. And and so I'm really Mm -hmm. curious about that, like, like this sort of that aspect of those of us who care about history can imagine a public works project. There was a time when if we were in a moment like right now where a lot of people needed work and there was economic uncertainty, the federal government would pump a lot of money into paying, you know, mostly men, but a lot of people to go out and dig a bunch of holes right, and do some work. So I'm curious, like, if that is that is that a, is that a path forward that like broadband or any of these efforts could turn into? Yeah, that, that's an excellent point about when you think about how the interstate system came about. It was a top-down effort. Eisenhower knew that. The emperors built the Silk Road, the, the Roman Empire was built mm. by the emperors, uh, you know, right down from Napoleon and Hitler. Mm. And and Eisenhower said, you know, this is going to be a top-down effort. It has to be a federal effort. And Washington would have supported him on that. So it has to be a federal effort because you can't percolate up this, mm. this, this connectivity and these national systems. You, it has to be federalist. It has to be from the from the top down on networks these have to be designed i mean this is this is one of those fundamental things we learn in, in the tech world is you know if you try to like you want to pay attention to what's bubbling up in the grassroots but then you and want the, to sort of say we've got an answer we're going to make it universal exactly and there's, there's so many uh, demands so little in, in the way of resources that they called them worm miles early, early on, because everyone had these fantasies about the road they wanted built. But mm. way back, we're talking like 1912, the federal government realized if they're going to do rural free delivery and they're going to improve these road systems and get people their mail, not, you know, email, but hand delivered mail. Physical mail, yeah. They're going to have to build these roads and the roads were going to have to be the most important roads. So it was important for the states to figure out which roads they wanted built, which states would link up with other states. And that's how it kind of percolated up. But it was all, all done with the federal authority, the federal funding, the federal masterminds dr- drawing up the master plan that everyone finally that they have contributed to. But they finally came together in agreement you know, pissing and fighting the whole way. I'm sure of it. It was fascinating to see how democracy, when it was motivated, came together and and created this interstate system. And that could be replicated. And I see broadband as one of those key issues. It's infrastructure. It's what can take a city like Chattanooga and make it really cool and hip to live in. It's just a mill town. You know, these these efforts are proving to be bearing fruit. So these locals are doing it, but they need that federal money. They need that federal mandate that everything be uniform, you know, that we, we all have fiber optic, for example. The road's got to be the same width. 
Yeah, like I say, interestingly, all these moments have kind of come out of, well, you mentioned the defense thing too. It's like you mentioned Lincoln and Washington. It's all kind of come out of wars in some ways, which is kind of scary hmm. to me, right? Hmm. Like, yeah. like each of them have been like triggered by the Cold War or triggered by the Civil War or, you know, I don't know. I would assume that the internet was kind of triggered by like Cold War in part, right? And what is it like? Oh, it for sure. Of, it, I mean, they were yeah, very right? explicit yeah. about building a system that was resistant to thermonuclear war. Right. Which yeah. Is so like, I mean, quite a technical is, yeah. What it, I mean, do we have to have moments of like that in time to unify everybody? Is that is that is that what we have to do to get these done? I think, you know, I think the new war looks like cybersecurity issues. I think it looks like attacks mm-hmm. on our infrastructure and our power plants and uh, and our our way of life. Yeah. And and I think that's why we really need to pull this under a federal authority. Figure out how we're going to harden it. And Anil, you know probably all about that, but the idea of these fiber optic cables is so key because a copper line is like a garden hose. The yeah. fiber optic is like the Mississippi River. You know, it's yeah. it, and you can get high def and you can tr- upload and download, and it's just the way we got to go because and we saw it during the plague. You know, medical appointments, conferences, everything transferred yeah. and moved over. Just like the trucks going to the airport during 9-11, you know, this was a crisis and we we were yeah. we survived because of the Internet. All right. Well, that. I, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, say one, any other question. Yeah. I have one last question, which is what's the thing you geek out about that people don't see when they're just sort of cruising down the highway at full That's speed? That's a good question. <laughs> what, what do I geek out on, on the road? Yeah. It's it's just the magnificence of this single system that that it looks like it in Wyoming, like it does in California, that you can drive into the mountains at a certain grade, six percent, that you're gonna find exits every three miles in the country and every mile in the downtown, that the red, white, and blue shine signs are gonna take you exactly where you need to go without ever flipping open your phone. It's just genius in that it's so boring and so uniform that it's safe. It's the safest road in the world. And that's by design, that didn't just happen. That's amazing. That's, Actually, I was thinking about that. Like, there must be degrees that every curve is dedicated. Oh right? yeah, like you, yeah. That's totally. We had those manuals, that. the the Ashto manuals on our our dinner table growing up. And oh yeah, oh my I, god, Anil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would, you know, and I like, I didn't even know what they were, but I was like, this, I know this is cool. That was definitely nerd stuff. I love it. That's awesome. Well, we gotta we gotta wrap up here. But Dan, I always ask my guests, what is something that you outside of uh, the highway system or roads in general or infrastructure are super interested, way too interested right now? I can't stop obsessing, Gavin, about the east side of Manhattan, uh, the trunk line that was never built, a hundred years of stops and starts to try to build a subway line. And this is the future of America. Can we build a subway line? Can we build 16 stations? Uh, And it remains to be seen. It goes right through Harlem, right through lower Manhattan. It's the second Avenue subway is going to get built again, part of it. But I obsess about the connectivity of that system and how remarkable it would be if we were flying up and down the east side of Manhattan. It's also shocking because somebody's lived there, obviously, and is there too, but like to see that big of a project happening inside of Manhattan and just have Manhattan kind of like go on around it. It's just like another New Yorker could give, could give a crap about, you know, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> it totally is. And when I finish my book on the second Avenue subway, I hope you'll have me back so I can get out of the doghouse with the, uh, <laughs> with Elizabeth. Well, thank you so much for both of you guys for being here. Um, Dan, where can people find you or your work? I, I am on a, a website. It's danmcnichol.com. 
Great. And then Anil, uh, what's your, you might as well say your, your, your world famous Twitter handle. <laughs> Anil Dash and I'm at anildash.com. Great. All right. Thanks both of you for being here. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you next time. Okay, Gavin and Neil, thank you. All right, everybody, that's our show for this week. Thank you for tuning in to Way Too Interested. Um, it's the second show of 2022. We got a lot of good stuff coming up. Uh, fitting all this into my schedule is always challenging, but I really love doing it. So I hope you love listening to it. Please drop me a line at Gavin Purcell. Um, oh, I did want to mention something else. I am having a lot of technical troubles, which is fun, which is frustrating because I am a pretty technical person, but I'm definitely not an engineer. So I'm working on trying to make the audio quality a little bit better. In this episode, there was another audio issue, but it is what it is. Um, I love making these and I hope you love listening to them. Please go to iTunes and go to all the places and, and recommend it. And I want to say thanks to the Gregory Brothers for the theme song. Thanks to Eric Johnson for helping me produce these and do some of the editing work on the back end. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. We will see you next week.